The gospel is not merely for the new believer. Rather, it is central to all that we are, all that we think, all that we do, and all that we are becoming. So we're going to dig a little into the nature of the gospel this morning. So open with me, if you've got a Bible there, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd be happy to hand one to you and we can, uh, you can follow along with us. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep this one. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, what we're going to do as we look at this, I I think that God wants us to hear from this passage this morning, this truth, that the gospel is simple and it leaves no room for your ego. That's what we're going to talk about. The gospel is simple. It leaves no room for your ego. What we're going to do is look at the simple message of the gospel in three parts as we walk through this text. We're going to look at the gospel's message, its recipients, and its method of communication. That's how we're going to walk through this. All right, so before we actually read the passage, let me give you a little background on this letter. We are jumping now into a new letter, 1 Corinthians, and it's written to a completely different place, a completely different time than the, the series that we've been in. So let me tell you about Corinth. This letter that is written is a correspondence between the Apostle Paul in the first century and a group of largely Greek and Roman Christians in the city of Corinth. And these people were new believers struggling to follow Jesus in a culture uh, of that Roman city that they're in. Now, there are all kinds of pressure in this city to have a wise and eloquent solution to the problems of life. It was like a, I mean, it was a Greek city. It was this intellectual competition where these new Christians in Corinth were starting to, in the church now, divide themselves into factions based on the different leaders, similar to what they were doing in the marketplace. And if you want to kind of get an idea of the city of Corinth and what it's like, just think of San Francisco. It's incredibly similar. It's striking, actually. Corinth was a wealthy port city. It was an influential government center of the Roman world. It was beautiful. It was situated right there on the water. It was known for its entertainment. It was known for having all kinds of crazy lifestyles and all kinds of crazy behavior. It was a a very unique and beautiful and wealthy and influential city. There are so many parallels to the place that we live. I'll draw those out as we go along. But I want you to see that Corinth is the context now that we're looking at a passage. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 5. So this is what Paul says to this church. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, we're going to stop there and now walk through this passage. As I said, we're going to look at it in these three different parts. The first thing that Paul does, and again, the context here is there are a number of teachers in this church and people are starting to divide because they want to follow one versus the other. And he launches into this description of the gospel and its message. And that's in verses 18 to 25. And I want you to see that he gives this very, very simple definition of what the gospel is. It's two words. Christ crucified. Although it is simple, it's radical. Okay, so remember, Paul is writing to a city and a culture and a people who idolize wisdom. Corinth is a part of the Roman Empire, but something you have to know about the Romans, as much as they were a great military conqueror, they had very little culture of their own. They sort of took over the Greek culture and then adopted it and then spread it as they conquered various places around the Mediterranean. So this city of Corinth, although it's a Roman city at this time, is very Greek in its culture. It is very Greek in its pursuit of wisdom and an intellectual enlightenment. There was this lofty rhetoric and complicated philosophies that were preached all throughout the city. There were sort of competitions as to who could create the most compelling argument for their system of thinking. Public debates, even, on these. So this is why this church is starting to divide, they still believe and they still sort of buy into, as new Christians, that intellectual arm wrestling and philosophical one-upsmanship of, of the place that they lived. And now they're doing it within the church. So think about how similar this is to San Francisco or the Bay Area. There's a very clear sense, and maybe you could summarize our attitude as people in the Bay Area this way, that we sort of think that we are so enlightened about all types of issues that it's only a matter of time before the rest of the country catches up to us. That's how we feel. That's kind of how we think and how we act most of the time. There's this sort of snobbery about our wisdom and our uh, sort of a competitive streak to our system of ideals. And in fact, most people, or, or many people in the Bay Area think that the goal is to sort of purify your worldview or your way of thinking of anything that sounds like a myth or religious or uh, 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 the, the, the truths of something that somebody tells you what to do and to sort of arrive at some enlightened understanding of humanity and society that's sort of been washed away of the influence of anything of God. But you see, we have idolized wisdom, but we have a particular variety of it that sort of claims to be king of the hill. That's what we do. This is the Bay Area. Now, Paul speaks into a culture just like this. Look at what, how he starts this passage. 
in verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, what's interesting about this is Paul splits up people into two categories. He sort of, he sort of gives this, these two different categories of those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now, the words that he uses for that, those are actually a form of a verb. I'm going to talk about a little grammar here, so if you want to nerd out on that, you know. I would get excited about that type of thing. You might not. But those verbs that are used imply an ongoing and progressive action. So those who are perishing and those who are being saved, it is something that you're actively doing. It's not a settled category or something that you're stuck in necessarily. Because if you look and you understand Scripture, we understand that the idea of repenting, imagine yourself walking down a road. The idea of repenting is that you turn a 180 and you walk in the other direction. So this idea of repentance helps us to understand these categories a bit. But what Paul is saying is that to those who are on that path walking in this direction, away from God, that is folly. And those who are walking towards it, who have repented, have turned around and are looking to God, this is of vital importance. Your life is at stake. Now, in verse 19, immediately after sort of giving this framework, he quotes from the book of Isaiah. And some of your Bibles have a little footnote that say, it says that he's quoting Isaiah 29, verse 14. Now, he says here that, he's gonna, that, that God says he's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now, when we look at a quote like this, and I want you to make sure we understand this, when you read the New Testament and there's a quote of one line or one verse from the Old Testament... It was assumed that the author, uh, it was, the author assumed that you would understand the entire context of the surrounding verses, the surrounding chapter, indeed the entire book that was written in that Old Testament passage. We often today, when we quote in our literature, we're just wanting you to see exactly what's in those quotations. An ancient writer is giving you a tip to say, hey, remember what Isaiah wrote in chapter 29? in the context of chapters 1 through 39, in the context of chapters 1 through 66, in the context of all of Scripture. Like, he's, he's sort of helping us to see what is going on here. And if you were to read the entire chapter 29 of Isaiah, you would see that this is a passage that talks about this metaphor of God being the potter and us being clay. The idea that God is the creator and is absolutely sovereign and controls the lump of clay that he is forming. And this passage of Isaiah talks about the foolishness of a creature to try and outwit, outsmart, or defy the one who created it. He talks about God as creator and us as creatures and God's sovereignty and us under his watch care. That's what that passage is about. So Paul is describing the gospel now in terms of God's sovereignty and his decision and his choice on what he's going to do. So Paul then goes on the offensive. Look at verse 20. He gets straight to the point. He calls out the supposed wise people in this place, and he uses these terms, the scribe. He says, where is the scribe? And then he says, where is the debater of this age? Scribes would refer to the intellectual elite of the Jews, and debater would be the intellectual elite of the Greeks. He's saying, you think you have wisdom? 
You think you can solve the issue of the problem of what to do with people and how to solve humanity's issues? He gives this two type of people as the intellectually superior class who supposedly had the answers to the meaning of life. And here's where it gets interesting in verse 21. Paul basically says, the world's wisdom doesn't work. And you know what? God knew it wouldn't work. Paul calls his own preaching folly. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He goes on and says, for Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Gentiles meaning everybody who's not a Jew. In that time, the Greeks, the Romans. Paul simply uses this two-word phrase when he talks about the gospel. Christ crucified. Now, remember, we're looking at the message of the gospel in this first part, and he says it is here in these two words. It is simple. Christ, meaning Messiah, meaning the anointed one of God, and crucified, meaning killed, strung up on a cross as a criminal who is cursed. We have to stop for a second there, because that is a contradiction. Or seemingly, it is. How could Paul preach about the anointed one of God who was to save God's people and lead them into his loving presence who died? Not only that, he died as a criminal who was cursed by God. And being crucified, and many of you know this, being crucified is the worst possible way of dying. It was so brutal and shameful that being crucified was illegal for a Roman citizen. Did you know that? A Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was reserved for the most vile of criminals who had literally no rights. You were strung up naked on a plank of wood in public until you suffocated to death. Sometimes one, two, three days. Paul is asking us to believe in and worship a crucified Messiah. Are you kidding me? How is that wise? How is that a compelling and logical argument to, the, to solve your problems? It's folly. It's illogical. This is what I like to call the illogical logic of the gospel. Okay, the illogical logic of the gospel. Paul says that preaching Christ crucified confounds the wisdom of the world. You see, Jews trip up on the idea of a dead Messiah. Okay, a Messiah was supposed to be powerful. Messiah was a conqueror. A Messiah was a winner. And you could not be a Messiah if you lost to the Romans and you ended up dead. And if you were Greek, you would think that this is ridiculous. This is folly. This is, if you were in a world of intellectual achievement and of one-upsmanship and of, uh, of a, a place where you were debating and arguing about truths and you were asserting your own opinion or whatever it was, you would not trust in someone who took the exact opposite path and ended up at the lowest place possible, dying on a cross. And yet, this is the gospel. Good news that God's power and his wisdom are proved right in this supposedly illogical act. 
Hey, listen, the, the might and the wisdom of the creator of the universe is revealed in the greatest display of humility and sacrifice that the world has ever known. That's the simple message of the gospel. Christ crucified. Because what's interesting about this is that the cross looks like defeat. It looks like weakness. But Jesus died as a substitute for the death that we deserved in the face of God's holiness. And when he rises from the dead, he conquers and he blows away all of the categories of what Corinth and what indeed we think is winning and conquering and saving that's the message of the gospel. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So what, after Paul gets into this very clear two-word description of the gospel, he then launches into the recipients, and that's part two. Who are the recipients of the gospel? This is verses 26 to 31. Now, we read this. If you, I, I can imagine, we can look at this and go, Paul is intending to remind the Corinthians about their humble situation in light of the gospel, but if you're hearing this, you might be a little offended. Okay, Paul basically says, this is kind of how his pep talk goes, I love you guys, but you're pretty average. You're actually not that smart. Uh, you know, you're not that great at what you're doing. Uh, you're not of noble birth. You don't have a lot going for you. You're not influential. But you know what? It's okay. I mean, that's, that's not a good pep talk, okay? That's not helpful at all, it seems. But he's basically saying to them, look, God chose to use you average people to prove the power of the gospel. I think there's a lesson to be learned here because God says that the gospel is received and it's the, the truth of what the gospel is and its power is displayed in you, slow-witted, common, and undignified people. <laughs> okay, maybe I could say the same thing about us. How's this? I, you know, I love you guys, but you're pretty average. You're not very smart. Uh, you're not influential, and you're definitely not like the upper crust, Okay. I know it's popular today to tell everybody, well, maybe there's one. I know it's popular today to tell everybody that you're special and everything, but frankly, you aren't. I mean, here's the point, okay? Paul is speaking to the character and the attitude of a person who understands the gospel. Because he wants to get rid of your ego. The heart of the gospel is this, that you have nothing to bring to the table anyway. Slow or smart, influential, common, king, pauper, all of us stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Isaiah said this. He prophesied, he said, every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. Before the cross, we are all on equal footing. You see, Paul says, if you want to understand the gospel and in simple terms, look at the people who've received it. Just look at yourself. God knows that you are incapable of boasting in your own brilliance because the gospel makes clear your inadequacy. And its, its entire foundation is the sufficiency of Christ's work, not yours. How could you ever consider boasting? 
How could you ever consider bragging about your own wisdom? This is basically what Paul gets at with them. He saw what they were doing. Trying to pick sides with the various leaders in the church. Arguing with each other over who was right and who wasn't. Paul instead says this, who of you saw the cross coming? Who imagined a crucified Messiah? (laughs) Who thought of a, uh, who came up with the idea of a salvation based purely on faith in somebody else's work on your behalf? Nobody. This is exactly how the simple message of the gospel shatters that prideful wisdom-seeking of the Corinthian church and of our area where we live. This is exactly a, a, this is a lesson I've been learning uh, as I've been trying to church plant in San Francisco. We've been working at this for four years. And, you know, I've been here at Solano through that entire time, and we've been trying to get this church planting ministry off the ground and come up with all kinds of issues going on. I feel this constant pressure to have a crafty answer to the cares and concerns of my neighbors. I want to convince them that they should follow Jesus. But I, I know I'm not actually smart enough to do that. Or at least I feel inadequate. I question the strategies we're using. I, if I get criticized by somebody, I feel like I just, you know, melt. I... I I want to meet everyone's expectations and sort of conquer and pioneer this new work and have people believe in the gospel because I helped them to understand it. And that entire thing is all focused on me. In so many ways, I'm like these Christians in Corinth, and you can probably relate. We're swimming in a culture of achievement and success and intellectualism especially here in the East Bay, and especially in San Francisco. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I'm worried that I'm not smart enough, articulate enough, or charismatic enough to win people over to Jesus. If you feel the pressure to have to go toe-to-toe against the wisdom of this place, we're in the wrong place in our heart. I feel sometimes like this often, that this is a battle I can't win. And so I despair. I recognize I'm not smart or influential or upper class, just like these Corinthians. I know I don't have anything to bring to the table. And you know what? On a day-by-day basis, honestly, my ego can barely handle that. Because I want to gird myself up and go, yeah, I can do it. I want to be perceived as competent and smart and influential. But you know what? This is exactly the point of the gospel. We preach a simple message. Christ crucified. And we can step out of the way and let the wisdom of God confound the wisdom of the East Bay. And sure, many people will look at the gospel and call it scandal or they'll call it folly. If you are bearing witness to Christ crucified, asking, understanding that Christ died for you and that you give your life up to follow him, even if you use as persuasive words as you can and if you try and speak as well as you can, you have to understand that the the message and the means of the gospel, it, it doesn't rely on you. 
You can only boast in what God is doing in his wisdom and in his power. And that's exactly where we get to when Paul comes to this third section of this text. He goes, after he talks about the message of the gospel and and the fact that it's proved right in the recipients of it, now he goes into its method of communication. And that is chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let me just read these again for you. Paul says this about himself. When I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, here's the key. There was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And the illogical, the illogical logic of a crucified Messiah was sinking into the hearts of the people of Corinth by the work of the Holy Spirit. Not Paul. How else could the message of the gospel be communicated? It's a message of God's work for people who don't deserve it and couldn't save themselves. How could we assume that people will accept the message based on your or my eloquence? Instead, such a seemingly illogical gospel is proved right by the fact that broken vessels, sinner saints like us, gathered together in the church, bring a message of salvation to a world that prides itself on self-made wisdom. And we can only do this in the power of the Holy Spirit because we have nothing to bring that would make the gospel seem wise. You see, as soon as you try and cross this threshold or line of making the gospel sound wise or attractive or easy or matching the issues that are going on in our culture, you're not preaching the gospel anymore. Because the gospel says, come and die to yourself. Give up everything. Trust in a crucified Messiah who rose from the dead and you will actually have life. That is a silly message to our culture. And yet, this is what the church is called to proclaim. That we preach that this message of Christ crucified with a demonstration of, of the Spirit and of power. That's my dream for the church. That the gospel would be communicated by people who admit their inadequacy and trust in the Holy Spirit to make the message effective. This is the same attitude that we have to have when we talk to our friends and neighbors and coworkers about Jesus. We get to let go of that pressure and burden to convince somebody because it seems illogical and folly. And let the Holy Spirit do the work in people's hearts because a crucified Messiah doesn't make sense. We speak boldly and know that people may still look at us and say, you're foolish. See, the whole point here is that Paul's description of the gospel's message and its recipients and its method of communication leave out any chance of you boasting in yourself. Gordon Fee, who's a 
scholar, New Testament scholar, he wrote a commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians, and he said it this way about this passage. It'll be up on the screen. He says, in every possible way, Paul has tried to show the Corinthians the folly of their present fascination with wisdom, which has inherent within it the folly of self-sufficiency and self-congratulation. Even the preacher whom God used to bring them to faith had to reject self-reliance. For Paul, this also functions as something of a paradigm for Christian ministry. And this is actually a paradigm for us to live by. You see, reaching anyone with the gospel requires we lay down our ego. Understanding the gospel, for that matter, means we lay down our ego. Lay down our self-sufficiency. Lay down our very lives at the foot of the cross. You see, the, the cross forces us on, to be on level ground. There is no way to exalt yourself at the foot of the cross. You see, when salvation comes solely by the work of God, then we're all on the same level. We all receive God's grace as a gift. And when God chooses to extend his mercy to us in the work of Christ, we don't have a claim to that mercy. We're not entitled to it. I think this is sort of the lesson that Hezekiah had to learn. Let me tie this back in, the passage we were going to look at this morning. Hezekiah, in the middle of this danger of being surrounded by the Assyrians, somewhere around the time that they were there or they were about to retreat, God gives this promise, and we looked at it last week, of hope that he's going to save his people. And then the very next passage, chapter 20, verse 1, tells us that Hezekiah became fatally sick. He contracted some kind of fatal illness right in the middle of this time when Assyria was about to be conquered by God. In this moment of triumph when Hezekiah was most clearly seeing the power of God on display, he learns that he's going to die and not see the victory of it. And he weeps and he pleads with God to spare his life. And God, in his mercy, grants him 15 more years. What we have to see about this is that right in this moment of salvation, when God is acting to save his people, God gives Hezekiah a stark reminder. He says, you are weak. You are not in control. You are not entitled to this victory. It's like God said loud and clear to Hezekiah, if you thought yourself worthy of my salvation, or if you thought yourself entitled to my mercy, you're mistaken. Because Hezekiah not only didn't have control and couldn't save his people in Jerusalem, he couldn't even save his own life and manage his own health. In every possible way. He had no option to try and boast in himself. This is exactly why Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And he says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Hezekiah had nothing to boast in of himself. Even if he thought his health was something he could have boasted in, God took that away. In every way, God was teaching Hezekiah that salvation belongs to the Lord. That there's no room for Hezekiah's ego or any thought that Hezekiah could contribute to the gracious saving act of God. 
And today we have to learn the same lesson. The gospel leaves no room for your ego or any thought that you're entitled to God's grace. We are unable to save ourselves and unable to save others. And the message of the gospel is so simple as Paul puts it. It is Christ crucified. And if that is the heart of the gospel, God's wisdom on display in Jesus' finished work on the cross, then we can only boast in his power and his wisdom. Maybe that's something you need to reflect on this morning. We're going to move to a time of communion and maybe this is an opportunity for you to reflect on the truth of the gospel, see you and understand like the Corinthians, if you as a recipient of it and actually who you are, and then understanding how that message is even communicated to you and to the people around you as you witness to Christ, the truth of the gospel of a crucified Messiah and the gift of God's grace has to saturate that through and through. So let's move to our time of communion together.